And if you recall, we were just beginning to look at the last four, which are the which have to do with wisdom, pure wisdom. Uh, and that's where <clears throat> the vipassana practice, pure and simple, comes in. And what the Buddha says in, uh, in the 13th, so we now have moved from 13 through 16, finish up this particular sermon of the Buddha. There's actually more, but it, this is what leads to factors of enlightenment and so forth. What is mentioned is that in the 13th, while breathing in and breathing out, the yogi sees that all formations are impermanent. That is, everything is impermanent. And you see this as you breathe in and breathe out. And in this usage of it, the term impermanence is shorthand. It includes both dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not-self. So it's, for those of you who are new, uh, these are, there are some Pali terms that you will, if you haven't already, at some point if you stick around here or co- ever come back, you'll hear these words, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not self. The reason anicca is enough, impermanence is enough, is that they all, really all are expressions of it. We've all seen enough examples of that throughout this week, for sure. Your relationship to this place has changed, physical condition changes. Um, it's not that impermanence um, and dukkha or unsatisfactoriness are so different because when you look closely at all kinds of suffering, from the very obvious to rather subtle, you could see that another term for it is that causes and conditions change. They change uh, the arrangement of energies in the body change and we get sick. Something happens the way the energies are distributed in the body, the elements and so forth, and we get old and then we also die. It's out of our control. We don't own the body. We don't, you'll see in a moment, we'll see how this is very important. And so to say that uh, impermanence, is, uh, that suffering exists, is often to say that everything is uncertain. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the problems is our inability to accept this uncertainty. Uh, we make tremendous demands upon life to attain some kind of security. Where We spend a huge amount of energy trying to find security on all kinds of levels. Physical, financial, and certainly emotional. It's everything. If you look at your day, you'll see a lot of our time and effort goes into uh, really to feel secure. But but this uh, tremendous urge for security is only natural, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But part of why it's so difficult is that the nature of things is uncertainty. So you have a kind of head-on collision between tremendous demand for stability, fixity, stability, control, safety, security. In the meantime, everything is changing and it's changing according to its laws. It doesn't really care whether we know about this law or we don't know about it, whether we agree with it or we don't agree with it, whether we've studied it, whether we're Buddhist or whatever. It seems to be the nature of things. So that what we don't do a lot of is we seem to have a very difficult time, often even an inability to face uncertainty in life. So that one of the things that could help us tremendously, granted that this is true, that it's out of our hands, is if we began if we could begin to get comfortable with understand, that comes through understanding, this obvious fact that everything is uncertain. 
But instead of doing that, we keep trying to force certainty upon uh, materials that don't uh, lend themselves to it. The earthquake in Japan. I was on uh, a retreat when I came out. I uh, read a lot about it. And one of the things that happened there was, it seemed to me, it didn't seem to me the Japanese were in a way saying it themselves that they had this tremendous confidence in their system of dealing with earthquakes. After all, they have a long history of it, and they have a highly advanced and sophisticated technology, and they're very motivated to, through engineering, architecture, and so forth, uh, systems of help. So they had it all set up, and they were pretty confident. And uh, out of nowhere, in, in quotes, uh, the earth rearranged itself, that's all. It's not like a killer earthquake, it's just nothing personal. <laughs> Unless you happen to be Japanese in, in Kobe. Uh, but what came out of it, for the, for the point I'm trying to make, is that uh, the Japanese government uh, is now doing research, believe it or not, well, not it's uh, into the psychological uh, after effects, because what happened was they were not prepared for it. They had a little too much. They were a little too cocky, and what they found out is that even the best physical structures and the emergency systems uh, are no match for nature. I don't know. Someone correct me. I don't know if my memories are. I think Kafka or someone said, "In a contest between man and nature, put your money on nature." <laughs> Maybe no one said it. Maybe I just made it up. I don't know. <laughs> Any literary dudes here who know? <laughs> that was from a previous incarnation, so I don't know. <laughs> and what they found was that, um, of course, they didn't have the kind of security that they wanted because everything is uncertain. And when it struck, they, uh, strange things happened. Uh, there is a, 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 psych, a few Japanese psychologists who are arranging to meet with John Kabat-Zinn at UMass Medical School. But they want to talk over him. It's interesting because he got a lot of what he, he teaches from Zen. And now it's kind of re getting recycled and going back. Uh, they want to understand, for example, uh, the Japanese are tremendously obedient people. And uh, really, uh, they're obedient to authority. And some strange things that happened is that uh, people didn't help other people because the, the, the word hadn't come down yet from higher authority as to what to do. They also were unable to accept help. Countries really, uh, United States, European countries, started, wanted to help and the Japanese uh, couldn't deal with it because they, they have a, a thing with taking help. Some of that is good. I mean, they're very self-reliant. But this was self-reliance to the point of madness. And they're now trying to understand how they could have made the situation so much worse than it had to be. Okay, that's external. But what it points to is that uh, when we look at the law of impermanence, you can't help but see that the fact that things change uh, is another way of saying that everything is uncertain because they don't change in ways that we necessarily agree with or can understand or predict. We do our best, and it's wise to do our best. But then when it doesn't work out, uh, if we were prepared, if we understood the tremendous power of this law of uncertainty, uh, I think we'd be in a better position to be able to, at least psychologically, have genuine security. It would come from the acceptance of insecurity. Alan Watts said that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to take credit. You know, I took precepts about not lying and things. And the third, uh, anatta, also is really a slightly different way of saying that everything changes of, of impermanence. So the impermanence, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, what it's saying is, that when you look closely at the mind, and you've been doing that for a while now, and uh, I think you probably have a pretty, it's pretty vivid, uh, 
based on the interviews, I'm sure it's vivid to you, uh, that uh, there's nothing to grasp at. The mind is just not a thing. It's a process that is an ongoing, changing. Uh, moods keep coming and going, uh, likes and dislikes and self-images, and it's just endless. Um, so how could there be a self when there's no core? That is, if you see things are endlessly in flux, what you're also seeing is that they lack a core so that we impute a substantiality to ourselves, to the mind. Uh, and this is, of course, in, in Buddhist teaching, the deepest hallucination, the one that causes finally the deepest suffering. We create a sense that there is someone named me. And then, of course, this me keeps getting hurt all the time. We spend all our energy protecting it and nourishing it and trying to enhance it and so forth. And then when we look really closely, we'll give a few hints, uh, it's not to be found. There's nothing there to be found. The, the self, in this sense, is unfindable. Something is there, but it's constantly changing. No one's saying that that's a hallucination. But what we are saying is there's nothing you can point to and say, this is me. You can do it, but then within a short period of time, something else is going to turn up that's contradictory, or uh, which one is the real you? After a while, you, you see that. And, okay, so the 13th is, of course, crucial. Uh, and it's while breathing in and breathing out. This, remember, those of you who have been here all along, it's the classical method. <laughs> I know your bodies have been here all along. <laughs> so the lesson to be learned here is that as we breathe in and as we breathe out, uh, we notice impermanence. Where? We'll get to that in a moment. And the remainder, the last four, really have to do with the uh, tremendous value of seeing impermanence, of seeing uh, emptiness, of seeing emptiness slightly different, but for the moment, let's say that there isn't a core there, the insubstantiality of the self. And the contemplations have to do with the uh, when we are able to see that things are impermanent, uh, this is a tremendous help in letting go. Letting go of attachments that we have, which bring suffering. If you really see the law of impermanence at work over and over and over again, not just in thought, but by direct perception, moreover, you have to understand that as, you pract as your practice deepens, uh, the seeing deepens, uh, so that uh, the very same breath is different uh, when the mind is more clear. That, that is, there's a, trem uh, a tremendous refinement in our capacity to see, a tremendous range in the depth from somewhat superficial, primarily influenced by thinking, to when there's no thought whatsoever and a really, uh, like having an elect electronic microscope, very, very deep seeing of the way things are. And so, if you examine attachments, you can see that you're holding on to something, uh, but as you contemplate impermanence, it, uh, finally, wisdom, which keeps pronouncing, announcing and pronouncing, in a sense, do you remember the Kilesas, our old friends, greed, hatred, and delusion? In a way, our practice is an epic struggle between the kilesas and wisdom. And for the most part, the kilesas are winning out. Uh, certainly, if you look around the world, it's obvious there's what the real uh, scarcity is wisdom, understanding. There's very little of it. We keep doing the same things over and over and over again, producing the same unsatisfactory results. So as understanding starts to, uh, as you soak up, as you soak in the understanding through, again, this is not an idea or a theory. What it is is the direct experience, the intimate experience of the law of impermanence, let's say. 
more and more uh, that law which has been screaming out day and night, 24 hours a day. There's no shortage of the teaching. A bird chirps, it's saying impermanence, impermanence. <laughs> But we just hear chirp, chirp. Etc., etc., etc. As we get it, and as that getting it sinks deeper and deeper into the marrow of our bones, uh, attachment makes no sense. Another word for wisdom is just true intelligence. If the world in, is really constantly changing, endlessly, in a state of change, and it's out of control. We don't own it. It's another meaning of not-self, other meanings of not-self. Then to grasp at things makes absolutely no sense. It's foolish. It's, the problem isn't, the problem is ignorance. If it's really true, then our responses are totally inappropriate. How could they possibly work? The music keeps changing. You know, first you have, uh, this dates me, Foxtrot, and you're dancing to that. <laughs> and having, it's wonderful, and then somebody puts on some uh, hard rock, and you're still dancing to the Foxtrot. <laughs> I don't think it's too satisfying, aside from how people will see you. <laughs> but that's what's happening. The music is changing constantly. And we get fixated. We have a few things. We get fixated on this, that, and the other. And life itself, which can't be captured by any concepts or ideals, including Buddhism, it's much bigger than any ism or any teaching. The Buddha acknowledged it. How could any set of words capture what we call life? It's just not possible. As, so that the wisdom here helps us dramatically let go of that which we should let go of. Which is what? What should we let go of? Uh, one translation of the last, one way of talking about the 16th, which is sort of the icing on the cake. The sense of it is, while the yogi is breathing in and breathing out, uh, what the yogi returns everything to nature that has been misappropriated, or as we, I'm paraphrasing to some degree, we give it all back. We give back something that we have taken, uh, we've, we've appropriated it. It never was ours, but we believed it was. We thought this body was ours, we thought this mind was ours, we thought the United States exists and that we own it. Uh, it goes on and on, and what, the le what you're letting go of, finally, is the attachment to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Now, I know for those of you who knew this might be not so clear. Uh, I can't help that, uh, but just know you're in good company. That is, especially teachings of emptiness and anatta have created a lot. If you see Buddhists and they have a lot of furrows in their brow, <laughs> Because years of trying to understand everything is empty, and that's supposed to be good news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if you don't understand it, it's all right. It's what is called planting seeds. That's the rationalization, anyway. Um, in the letting go process, what we're letting go of is that is the burden. Meditation halls are places, uh, you know that we don't want you to sleep here. You must have gotten that by now, right? You know, whenever you hear a guided, you know, like, be aware of the breath coming in. Have you noticed that, I don't know if you know this, somebody is asleep. That's why we say these things. <laughs> and very often they, oh yeah, right. You probably think we have some kind of intuitive sense of your mind and we're saying these things. You, how did he know that we were, uh, needed some, a little bit of guidance, a little bit of Dharma juice? I didn't know. Just somebody was slumped over and snoring. So I, so I, said, so I say something. See. 
in Zen, they're, ju they're just much more direct. They just whack you with a stick. <laughs> just get it over with. We're very gentle here. So meditation halls are not really places to sleep. They're places to die. I don't know if you know that. That's why this hall is a place to die to all of your stuff. Not to anything really valuable. Don't worry about it. <laughs> One teacher I had referred to the meditation hall as a, uh, a, waste, a waste disposal area. You know, in other words, a garbage dump. <laughs> where we all leave our garbage here. Okay, so now uh, you've gotten the Reader's Digest version of these 16 contemplations. A short, now remember I said it is a, a condensed version of it. We're almost ready for that. In the classical way, what you do is you take up these contemplations. This is one way to practice. It's not the only way. Teachers vary, I found. But it's a good way. And you, so you go through all 16. It's kind of a natural unfoldment because uh, until you, like the first four, if you recall, have to do with the body and the mind settling down, developing some samadhi, some concentration, and then beginning to use that, be becoming more familiar with feelings, mind states. And then you're in a position to begin to see impermanence. If there isn't a certain clarity and stability of mind, it's not too realistic to try to see impermanence or not or any, any other of these terms. So roughly it unfolds this way naturally. But so each contemplation there uh, being explicit and they can be taken up as particular contemplations, all of which include the breath. So that what you would do is then one way to go about this is you go back to, remember good old one and two? One and two had to do with seeing uh, if, when, the, when the breathing is long, you know it. When the breathing is short, you know it. Well, you could go right to that and begin to examine now length of breath. Only now you're viewing it from the point of view of impermanence. And you see that a long breath doesn't remain long for long. It becomes short soon. And then, in other words, all the qualities, if you recall, that shorthand for the qualities of the breathing, as you look at the qualities of the breathing, it becomes obvious that they're going through constant change. So you can learn about the law of impermanence on the breath itself by seeing that uh, the breath keeps changing. You can just take an individual breath and see that it arises and passes away, which is excellent. Uh, there was one person in Cambridge who really went rather deep with this because he was just drawn to a long breath, short breath for some reason. It doesn't matter. So it, because it interested him, he was able to really develop a lot using it and seeing change in that. If you recall then in the third, there was the being aware of the whole body while breathing in and breathing out. And if you remember, it was suggested that the breath is a very powerful conditioner of the body. That is, as the breath changes, because you're aware of it, or even if you're not aware of it, as the breath changes, it affects the body, it has a powerful effect on the body. As the breath becomes more refined and subtle, to some degree so does the body. Well, you could study that and begin to see how as the breath changes, the body changes. And you could see how it doesn't, nothing lasts. Perhaps, and then moving into the fourth, where the body becomes filled with a stability and a calmness, it doesn't last. It's not forever, nothing is. And so you can begin to see impermanence uh, in, uh, in the functioning of the breathing, in the functioning of sitting, and you're learning about that. You're learning about the law of impermanence. Also, and this one has been particularly fruitful for me, uh, a lot of whatever little I know of anatta, uh, emptiness of self, etc., I've gotten from this particular contemplation. It's just been very fruitful for me. It doesn't mean it will be for you, but just so you can see the uh, possibilities. Remembering also, as you move through this, you're given tremendous freedom. If you're particularly drawn to any one of these 
contemplations, let's say 1 through 12, which you would now be looking, from, looking at through the eyes of, of uh, wisdom practice, then go to it and do that. Just see how that's impermanent. Each person is different, and so individual differences are, are treated very seriously in the practice. It's fine. But I'm going through a fair number to give you a, a feeling for what we're saying. You remember the contemplation, and we had a little bit of a guided meditation the other day. Being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes in. Being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes out. And as that deepens, that's the third. That becomes the fourth, where the mind, the breath, and the body come together, and there's just tremendous peace. The breath is very harmonious, and there's a a unity of mind, breath, and body. Well, and what I'm about to say may have happened to you anyway. It doesn't necessarily go in such a neat order. There can come a point where, uh, let's say if you take the third contemplation, being aware of the whole body, the yogi breathes in and out, where the breath uh, is so, you have so let go of the breathing in the sense that you're not controlling it. You have surrendered to the breath to such a degree that the breath is unfolding naturally and there's tremendous calm and the body is sitting there. It's a sitting, breathing body. And as you look at it carefully, you can certainly see that breathing is happening. That is factual. That's palpable. The breath is happening. And there's no breather to be found. And you look at it now. Some of you I know of, some of you have been practicing for a while, have had this experience. Maybe you haven't extracted some of the implications of it. Because here's a sitting, breathing body doing perfectly well without big fat me. <laughs> Who's doing the breathing, doing, in other words, it's the meditator. The meditator is the big problem anyway. <laughs> it is. Uh, because real meditation begins when the meditator finally exhausts himself and herself. The meditator is just the ego dressed up as a yogi, that's all. <laughs> it's a disguise. Just decked out as a very spiritual person, trying to get what? You know what you're trying to get. But in some of these sittings, in spite of that, suddenly the self-consciousness of being a practitioner falls away. And there's just sitting and breathing. And it's a feeling of being breathed. Well, in that moment, you can see uh, that can be used to deepen your understanding of anatta. There's no self. The body is just, the body, the breath, it's all just natural. It's just all happening. And then, it, then you see it, and within a few moments, something jumps in and claims it and appropriates it again. And that's, the meditator is back. We have, we're given a little bit of a vacation, and now here he's back again. Now, it's that that you hand back in the 16th. You give, give it back to nature where it belongs. Let me give you a, another example with the body. This is being paraphrased from a certain Zen koan. Um, when you have to practice or just live, let's, let's for the moment limit it to practice. Uh, when it's very hot or it's very cold. And some, how do you do that? No one likes to practice or even to live when it's very hot and it's very cold. And somebody, some of the advice are to kill hot, kill cold. Or, and sometimes it's said, hot kills, cold kills. What are they talking about? Uh, and how could, this at all, how could this be helpful? Um, and then finally, uh, it said, when uh, the name of this is sometimes called Hot Buddha, Cold Buddha. And one way of looking at it from the point of view of what we're talking about here, let's say it's very cold, because that's more what, our, what we're concerned about right now. That'll change. Then, <laughs> then we're all upset it's too hot. We look forward to being March. 
what's happening is the body is a certain temperature. So that if we're thinking of the contemplation of the body, all that's happening is the body is a certain temperature. Then we move into feelings, which we're going into anyway. Remember, the feelings are the next, next kind of contemplations. And if the body is very cold, then there's an unpleasant feeling. I don't like this. And if there's an unpleasant feeling, then the mind kicks in and starts talking about how cold it is, this, how cold I am. Poor me, this is freezing. What's wrong with these people? You know, we pay good money to come here. <laughs> Paying top dollar for this place. <laughs> and we have to wrap all our blankets and do this. And okay, what the, what the teaching is getting at is that uh, because finally it says, and I think this is, uh, can be very helpful, when it's hot, the Buddha sweats, and when it's cold, the Buddha shivers. Now, what they're getting at is, when, when, it, when it's said that um, hot kills and cold kills, what it means is the concept cold is what really kills us. Now, obviously, there are limits with this, because you could freeze to death, or even extreme heat can be fatal. But the range of normal human relationship to hot and cold is dramatically aggravated by the fact that the mind comes in. There's no emptiness. There is self. We make self out of the temperature. We create the, 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 the range of temperature are the materials out of which we uh, do selfing. We create a sense of, of a very uncomfortable uh, being, namely me, who's hot. Once you add me to anything, it's all over. Then you have a big problem. So all that's really happening is that there's heat. Now, if you can see through that and uh, kill hot, hot now being the concept, the temperature is just the actuality of it, or the cold, it's the actuality of it. Uh, hot is a word. Cold is a word. And then those words are not our favorite words. And once they uh, proliferate, they have children that come in and start telling you what hot is about, what cold is about, we start comparing, uh, well, I thought spring was already here, it isn't. Um, and we make things much worse. It moves from discomfort to torment. And the torment comes in uh, because we've made a self out of the body and its life experience, namely a, a change in temperature. And so uh, a romantic notion of the Buddha, sometimes uh, people get so, have such very romantic ideas as to what, after all, the Buddha was a person. He says so over and over. Okay. What else could he be? Unless you want a bedtime story. Okay. Um, if a person is fully and totally enlightened, and it's hot, they are going to sweat, just like anyone else. And if it's cold, they're going to shiver like anyone else. But the problem is, uh, the, 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 the way of practice is to, uh, is to not separate ourselves from the condition, the bodily condition, through thinking, but rather to become intimate with the conditioning. Now, this goes contrary to what, how we live our lives. Remember, we started out early on, let's get out of here. And the teaching, of what is being said here is, let's stay a while, St stick it out, stay here. Because if, especially in occasions when there's nothing we can do about it, if you can get to air conditioning or a warmly heated room, fine. But very often in life, we don't, we don't have control. And so what it, is, what it is, if we can play with this, is that the Buddha is sitting in meditation, fully enlightened and sweating or shivering. But it's not a problem, it's just what it is. because there's complete and full acceptance of the bodily condition. Now, we are at war with our bodily condition. That's, we're not intimate with it. We divide off from it. We create an entity known as me who's fighting uh, with the temperature. And as a result, the mind pours in with all kinds of comparisons, etc. And then we have a big problem. Well, you can see where this leads. It can help you with so many other problems. I pick something simple like being a little cold or a little hot, but it, it applies to everything else. Okay, um, let's move into feelings.
If you remember, uh, we talked a bit about uh, when the mind gets very concentrated, that is, in five and six, you can enter into what is called rapture and the kind of uh, peace, happiness, a kind of uh, a happy kind of peace. Those all, th those are born of a concentrated mind. Those are natural joys or states of consciousness that we like, we approve of, and it grows out of a, a concentrated mind. It's, a law, it's lawful. As your mind gets concentrated, uh, this starts to happen. Some of you have tasted the beginnings of that, and some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who are, have not, don't bring your comparing mind in and now make yourself suffer and all that stuff. <laughs> or if you're doing it, just watch it and see that your thoughts are impermanent. They just come and go. And come back to, to now. Okay, so when you, if you are doing this, remember now, we're, in the, we're, we're practicing vipassana. Uh, you would, let's say you have the ability, and there are practitioners who can drop into a tremendous calm at will. And um, highly concentrated peaceful states, uh, it's, not, it's not so special, it's, it's not that difficult to do. It comes with practice. Okay, but, so you would have to drop into that state. And let's say you're in a state of tremendous peace or rapture, it doesn't really matter. You would, you would now, instead of just being in it, uh, and usually you need a teacher to help you here because the tempta it's not a temptation, it's only natural. You get attached to it. It's so pleasant that you stick to it and you want it to last forever. But a, a good teacher would at that point say, uh, can you observe it and let me, know what, let me know how long it lasts. And as you observe it, you see that it, it doesn't last forever. It's impermanent. And a lot of suffering can come about when you get attached to these very concentrated states because they bring tremendous joy. And the joy is impermanent. And so it doesn't mean to not enter these states or that the joy is worthless, but it, what it's saying is the joy is impermanent. It it's subject to the law of change. And so the practice would be to see that it arises and that, that it passes away. And as you learn how to do that, then you can enter into the state, make use of it, benefit from it. It has tremendous benefit. Do you recall we had, I think we devoted one evening to the benefits of a concentrated mind, some of the really valuable things that it helps us with? So just because it's impermanent doesn't mean it's worthless. It just means that it doesn't endure forever. It doesn't last forever. Uh, it's not that you throw it out. It's that you get to know it for what it is, and then you can... Uh, have a, a useful relationship with it, and you can uh, help your, you can help yourself by becoming calm and concentrated when you need to, but you don't get hooked on it, you don't get attached to it, etc. So the law of impermanence can help you let go of that. She wears the pants, and the Ryan wears the pants. You don't like that one. <laughs> it's, it's generational gap. That's all. Everyone's gotten so liberated. I just I'm huffing and puffing, trying to keep up with it. Okay. Let's move, uh, so you've seen that the body can be looked at from the point of view of, of impermanence and absence and not-self. Feelings the same, that is, uh, the blissful feelings are there, but there's no owner really, and they don't last. So you can learn the law of impermanence on those attainments. Interestingly, this is how I see it, uh, when I started to have some of those experiences, in other words, some real fulfillment from a concentrated mind, and then uh, learn how to not be overly impressed with it, but to benefit from it. One of the things I learned about it was, and I had a good laugh at my own expense, somehow you get really happy, and then I realize, oh, because then now the real Vipassana is beginning. Your mind is now in a condition where you can do it 
where you have the strength of mind to be able to, to stay with, let's say, difficult states like fear, anguish, loneliness, but the mind doesn't, you know, has much better chance of, of being unwavering. What I saw was, oh, I get it. So this practice tricked me into getting happy enough so that I'm able to look at my suffering. <laughs> Before, there was no, nothing outside of it, no, not much, nothing with so much strength. And so it's kind of fanciful to think that a suffering mind is going to look at itself. It just doesn't work much. You end up psychologizing, drowning in it. So it, somehow, as the mind gets a bit happier, it becomes more spacious and uh, can then kind of go back to what brought you here in the first place uh, and look at it, but now from the point of view of learning and understanding and letting go. Okay, now we get to the... Let's use as a, a, a final example. Uh, contemplation 9, which is which will stand for the, all the mind states. And if you recall, that one is breathing in and breathing out, the yogi is aware of the mind, the mind itself. And if you remember that, uh, one of the main meanings of that is you see greed, hatred, and delusion. You see the mind with greed, the mind with hatred, the mind with delusion, the mind without it. And uh, when those states are there, now, if you're in the mode of uh, vipassana practice, uh, when greed is there, fine, let it be there. You're aware of it, and you see that it arises and passes away, and it lacks self. It's an energy. When aversion is there, you see it arise and pass away, and you see it lacks self. When the mind is confused or clear, or whatever the mind state is, uh, this is, of course, tremendously liberating, and I'm going to go into this in detail, some detail. Because this is where we do most of our suffering. Uh, this is where the mind uh, proliferates, and it takes feelings and builds out of them torture and torment. And uh, We isolate ourselves, and we frighten ourselves. We hurt one another, we hurt ourselves. Uh, this is self-knowledge. And the turning point here is more and more we realize that we are making ourselves suffer more than anyone else and anything else. And we stop expending so much energy on blaming the people in our life, the environment, the weather, whatever it is, IMS, anything that goes wrong, we have someone to blame. Or we go into self-pity, or we cope. We become experts at putting up with things for long periods of time. Um, turning towards the Dharma is a completely different kind of thing. Uh, and that's why this is for adults, because what it's saying is you're responsible for your own happiness. Each one of us is responsible for our own happiness. There's no outside agency that's going to do it for you. If you want to wait, Good, but I haven't found an outside agency. It may be. But in the meantime, I'm going to do the best I can. Um, so it's a dramatic uh, turning away and rechanneling of our energies. Many of us have tremendous concentration in all kinds of things. If you're a musician, you're highly concentrated when you play your music. And all of you know, just think what, what's, what you, maybe a hobby, whatever it is. But it's a rare person who is taking that quality of energy and now turning it on greed, hatred, and delusion, the sources of suffering. We haven't even recognized that we are our own worst enemy. And of course, potentially our own best friend. All in this very same mind, that's the place to look. To give you a sense of what not to do, I'd like to bring in my grandfather. <laughs> May he rest in peace. Uh, he came over at a fairly late age from, uh, from Russia and never managed to learn, I don't think, one word of English. Maybe okay, something like that. Okay. And uh, we lived on the Lower East Side, and he was quite a humorous character. But one of the things, he didn't laugh at what I'm about to say, but it became part of the family tradition. We couldn't wait whenever... 
there was a wedding or a bar mitzvah or some formal occasion where you had to dress up and put on a tie. Uh, because he, in Russia, somehow he never had to make a tie. I don't even think he owned one. But I'd suddenly, let's go, we gotta go. You know, my grandmother would you know, urge him on and we would all watch. I mean, it was well known what would happen. It happened many times. I've seen it a few times. So he would try to make his tie. <coughs> He would try many different ways. It would come out too, the bottom would be too long, <laughs> then the top would be too long. You know, and invariably, he would utter this loud curse in Yiddish. But basically what it said was, uh, may Christopher Columbus get cholera. <laughs> okay. And he would spit in the sink. In, other words, uh, in Eastern Europe, when you would curse, you would spit on the ground. But of course, he didn't do it. He was sort of like, Phew! and you would just say, "Should Christopher? Cl why?" At first, you know, like, "Why does Grandpa? What does Grandpa have against Christopher Columbus?" Said, so, "Well, you see, he discovered America. If he hadn't, if he hadn't discovered America, Grandpa wouldn't be here, and he wouldn't have to make a tie." find out he can't make a tie, feel humiliated, impatient, and then the whole family is waiting, and you know, etc. Don't live your life that way. Okay. Dharma is learning how to make a tie uh, by seeing how much you hate making a tie and seeing how you're blaming poor old Christopher. Apparently he did some not-so-nice things we now know, but anyway, he didn't, it wasn't his fault except in some ultimate way. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I promised that I, for a few people I would try to uh, be as vivid as I could to kind of give you the texture of what do you mean be with it? We keep hearing be with it, be with it, be with it. Could you be a little bit more concrete about what be with it means? Okay. Uh, let's take something like fear. But please you, you put in whatever else you want. If you want loneliness, boredom, anxiety, anguish, a state that we don't like, a state that's very painful and difficult to deal with. We all know what that is. Okay. Uh, the practice would be, first and foremost, uh, is it possible to observe fear? <coughs> or whatever you're thinking of right now. Or do we have to uh, live out our lives forever burdened by fear? Uh, and all the ways in which fear distorts things for us, it makes, uh, it cripples us emotionally. All of us know that. It limits us dramatically. Um, do we have to just, what do we do? Okay, first, what not being with it is. Let's get, uh, because being with it means Again, this term intimacy. It has to do with intimacy with fear. Not, there are many ways to not be intimate. How do we separate ourselves from fear? Some obvious ones are we deny it. And my generation of men, we were not allowed to be afraid. There wasn't one man from my generation who ever had a moment's fear. <laughs> we were brought up on John Wayne, and it's just not permitted. So I don't even know what fear is, but I'm kind of speaking fear. <laughs> Speaking theoretically here, I'm doing it out of compassion for you. So one is we deny fear. Another one is um, we escape from it into the movies, into food, into a book, into a friend, into the telephone. Uh, most anything will do. We become absorbed in something else, but the fear is still there. Another possibility is um, we try to explain it away. We, have, uh, we human beings don't have much faith in direct experience. And we far prefer a brilliant explanation about what's happening to us. And the truth is that a lot of our life is spent thinking about what's happening to us as it is happening to us. And a tremendous gap develops between actual experience uh, and, th and thinking, we lose more and more touch with ourselves. Uh, 
and so let's say you have a brilliant explanation of your fear, which may have come from Freud or the Buddha or Jesus or Krishnamurti, anyone. And it can be quite satisfying. The more intelligent it is, the more fulfilling. It's an escape from this point of view. Another thing that you might not think is an escape, courage. I'm going to deal with my fear. I mean, you know, really, uh, that the courage is between you and the fear. None of these are intimate yet. So there are all these different ways of not being with it. Being with it is when you start to see all these uh, networks of escape, and little by little, you see that they don't work. And finally, you see it's, that escape is hopeless. You, it's very helpful if you see that, that it doesn't really work. Because then, uh, your motivation to learn how to observe fear, to learn how to be intimate with fear, will come from your own understanding, which is the most trustworthy. Not because someone's encouraging you to, or you should do it, but you begin to see that unless you learn and understand how fear works in you, uh, it's going to go on forever. And all these other things are they don't really, they're not very fulfilling. They just stop gap and finally are um, ineffective. Okay, so some of the approach uh, means spending time noticing the escape to fear. Noticing how frightened we are of fear. How frightened we are of observing fear. And let's say the day comes where you wind up at a retreat like this and you get encouragement and so forth. Uh, Maybe you then turn to the fear. Well, then the instructions put in a number of different phrases uh, are designed to help you in this way. Can we allow fear to flower? Now, I'm intentionally using a very positive term. We don't use flower for things like fear. We like children to flower, flowers to flower, uh, beautiful things that we want them to bloom. But fear is something that we want to defeat, we want to conquer. And all these ways that we have of separating ourselves from it and then trying to conquer it. And we exhaust ourselves. The way of practice, that's the... Uh, we, the all of them have to do with thinking and with me. Well, you'll see this in a moment. When the day comes that there's a, a full, undivided, wholehearted turning to the fear, that is... There's a real allowing fear to be exactly what it is. Uh, a receptivity where the quality of looking is fresh, innocent, naive, uncontrived. Uh, there's, no, uh, the, there's no history there. Uh, the attention is so strong that at least temporarily the past has gone into abeyance. Memory and accumulated knowledge and memory of hurt that you may have had or why you're afraid. And there's just this raw fear and this innocent, pure contact. And they come together. They, the contact which has no opinions in it. It has no direction to it except the seeing itself. It touches the fear. Uh, usually what's, the reason our ways of working with fear are so limited is that we don't experience fear in the raw state. We cook it. We cook it in concepts. The main concept being, this is my fear. I am terrified. And then all the different escapes that are, include thinking, which I just mentioned, and I'm sure there are more. Okay, so the day comes where there's a, uh, an ability to enter into communion with fear. That means uh, you're not trying to fix fear. You're not trying to replace it with anything that's uh, with safety or whatever the opposite to you might be. No ideals, no ideas. It's just right here, right now, in this place, my practice is fear. It's not that fear is, uh, if only fear weren't here, I could practice. It's that fear is high-class practice. What could be more important than working with our fear? It's all over the place, indirectly or directly. Okay. When you're able to give that quality of undivided attention to the fear, when you touch it that way, uh, what, something magical happens. That means there's no separation between 
you and the fear, none whatsoever. Some of you, I think, especially some of you who are newer, think that uh, mindfulness is detaching from the object. And maybe it is taught that way sometimes, but I don't think we're, I know we're not teaching it that way. It's not ob- observing fear with a pair of binoculars from a mountaintop. Maybe at the beginning you have to do that because you have to kind of tiptoeing towards it. Okay, granted. But what we're talking about is participant observation, where you fully participate in that which you're observing, but you stay awake in the midst of that participation. It's, you're not removed from it, but you're also not lost in it. You're not drowning in it when you identify with it. I forgot that one. That's what typically happens. And then we're just frightened, terrified. Okay. So is that quality of attention. There's no separation. There's the full and total attentiveness to fear. And something happens there. When it's touched with that kind of energy, there's a transformation. Now, one of the main reasons that, that is uh, an important factor here is time. You have to let fear or whatever else it is unfold in its own time. And those of us who we know the law of impermanence now, when fear is there, yep, we agree, the Buddha's right, there's a law of impermanence, and I'd like to see it work a little faster right now. <laughs> okay. And you can see the mind sometimes, it's subtle. But what we have to do is, it's a surrender. We started out Friday night surrendering to the breath, and what's being asked of you now is something a lot more difficult. It's being asked to surrender to the fear, to the loneliness, to the whatever it is, the anxiety, the anguish. Uh, that means you have to allow it to tell its own story in its own language, which may not be words, and you have to allow it to unfold in its own time. Now that's, uh, that's what being with it is. Okay. Now there's one very important element that's missing. That's why this is so powerful. That's why uh, this quality of attention can transform us. What's missing is me. When you're able to attend to fear this way, it's no longer my fear. It's no longer my loneliness. It's no longer my anguish, my boredom. It's just fear. There is fear. And there's a knowing of it. Because in that quality of attention, you can't have that quality of attention and also have this self-conscious, I'm doing it. They don't go together. When, When the attention is that unwavering and that thorough, uh, this sense of being a separate self goes into abeyance. It's not there. I'm not saying it's eliminated forever, but it's not there. And the fact that it's not there changes the entire experience. Should it come back in and claim what's happening, then in that moment, uh, the whole process starts to disintegrate again. So you can see samadhi is helpful. Okay. The short method, we have to finish up now, the condensed method, You've been doing it, whether you know it or not. Step number one, in other words, all 16 are condensed into two. First off, get calm and concentrated any way you know how. Some of you like metta, great. The breath, whatever way you have of concentrating the mind. Get the mind to have some degree of, of steadiness, of clarity. And then sit and notice how everything arises and passes away. Now, when you do that, all these 16 are going to come up. Uh, Sometimes it'll be the body. If the body is very vivid and prominent, then you'll be contemplating the body tetrad, seeing that anything you want to talk about regarding the body arises and passes away and lacks self. If it's feelings, let's say a certain feeling is very strong, just naturally it, it has your attention. While breathing in and breathing out, you see the feelings come and go, that they, they, uh, they're not forever, and they lack a core. Or if it's these mind states, all the mind states come and go, and you can see them as you breathe in and breathing, breathe out. The conscious breathing is a kind of anchor. The, uh, eventually, the awareness is grounded in the conscious breathing, and uh, it sees the impermanence, the lack of self, uh, in all of these uh, events that make up mind and body. I hope that's clear, so that it's not that the two steps are short-circuit, are are, uh, uh, superficial. 
if you have time, the classical way is very thorough. It kind of explicitly deals with all these different things. But you're not going to get away with anything by doing the one in the just two steps. You can't, you can't cheat reality. For example, until the mind gets concentrated enough to have rapture, you can't contemplate the impermanence of rapture. It would just be your imagination. So first you have to be able to generate rapture. And that comes when it comes. And then you can see it, and you can see that it's impermanent. Okay. Uh, anyway, that's what we've been doing, and I hope we all finish strongly doing this together. Thank you. Could we have a few moments of silence? This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on March 10, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.